This is an Equity Beats Media podcast. Before we get into today's episode, we would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation who are the traditional owners of this land. We pay our deepest respects to the elders past and present and to the next generation who we hope to create a different future for. The best career advice that you are not getting is to invest. Hello and welcome to Your Ingle Company Summer Series, a set of conversations where we are chatting to some of Australia's most relatable voices for their take on taboo money topics. Over eight weeks, we will be asking the money questions that may have recently been on your mind, but you haven't had the confidence to bring them up. Questions like, why am I putting so much pressure on myself financially right now? Or how do I tell my friends that sometimes I just can't keep up socially? We know firsthand that talking about money can be oh so awkward. And we want to acknowledge right off the top that there is a huge amount of privilege inherent in all of these conversations we'll be having. But we do think that the more open we are about money and the more perspectives we can gather, the better off our overall financial well-being will be. So, welcome to our Taboo Money Conversation series. I am Maddie Guest, and as always, I'm in some very good company with my co-host, Sophie Dicker. We hope that this episode gives you a catalyst to start your very own money chat. This series is brought to you by UP. As upsiders ourselves, we are super excited to be working with a brand that is aligned with our purpose of helping young people tackle their finances. UP is the first digital bank which is making money easy for our generation by giving us the tools to get our finances sorted and get what we want in life. And right now, Maddie, I want to talk to Lucy Walk about how much it's going to cost me to start a business. Lucy Walk is the co-founder of sexual wellness brand Normal and career skills platform Fuzzy. She is also one of the founding vine makers at Grapevine, which aims to combat sexual harassment, bullying and bias in Australian startups. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We are so excited to talk to you today because we're going to talk about the cost of starting a business sexy so (laughs) sexy (laughs) but I feel like for a lot of people that is really sexy they're like yeah let me get into the dirty details I want to work in a startup yeah (laughs) yeah that's so true actually I think there's a lot of myths that we all take from pop culture and from the sample of stories that get elevated in the media of what starting a business looks like like so many areas of life that set of narratives is not necessarily always like reflective of the average experience or of everyone's experience. So I think it's a great topic to like delve into and just try and break down for people. Like if we got a nanny cam on your day in the life, <laughs> are you telling us it like wouldn't be sexy? <laughs> uh, there would be a lot of like, oh, there's a piece of accounting I need to go troubleshoot <laughs> or, you know, something's broken over here in this process. Can you fix it? So yeah, I'm like... The beginning of my week is I'm like, I price in that there's going to be this many problems that come up and I will have to deal with them. And that's like what a week looks like. (laughs) I do love speaking to founders of businesses and it's just like constantly putting out fires. (laughs) Yep. Basically, if you were to like map out your week, there's like the part where you get to do growth. Here's the strategy. Here's all the new stuff we want to do. Like, here's the direction we're going. That's going to be awesome. And then there's the part that's like the firefighting, like 40 to 80%, depending on whatever the week is. And then there's like admin. (laughs) So for anyone that doesn't know what you do, can you give us a bit of a background, who you are, what business you run, what business you started? Businesses. Businesses, (laughs) sorry. Um, Absolutely. Hello, everyone. Um, So I'm Lucy. So my background before work was I studied social sciences, which is like economics, psychology, political science, anthropology, like all of the things that tell you 
how human beings operate, why we do the things that we do, how to change uh, societies, how good things and bad things happen, which sounds completely useless, but has actually been really valuable in a business career. Yeah, I began my career in management consulting, uh, so professional services, working with lots of big corporates and governments and basically just advising on like their strategy or their operational problems. And then knew I didn't want to do that because it's fucking boring. Apologies <laughs> to my ex-colleagues. Um, and us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. I'm no, so sorry. Um, no, no, no. Um, like, I know people who love it, but I pre- knew pretty rapidly when I was in it. I was like, this is not me. <laughs> like a type of person type thing. Yeah, I think just... Uh, a sense that if I'm going to work this hard, I really want to be working on something I actually care about. And corporate strategy probably wasn't going to be it, but really useful set of skills. I think getting exposure to how businesses work and certainly very transferable. Uh, (laughs) So then I started working in the world of startups and I'm the founder of a company called Normal. And the philosophy behind that is um, that we think everyone should be able to have the information, confidence and tools for happy, healthy sexuality across a lifetime and many of us have grown up in a world where we got pretty poor sex ed if anything at all and your experience of like shopping for things like sex toys or lube is like going into store on Oxford Street and being like overwhelmed by like way too many dildos and not knowing where any of them go and not knowing how to like have an experience where you find what you want and know how to use it so with normal we uh, make modern beautiful sex toys and then we use that to fund free digital sex education that's now in 40 countries and growing and then I, I hated free time, so I started another company. <laughs> Can relate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I feel like this is just a therapy session for people with like career ADHD. Yeah, I started another company which was about teaching career skills. And particularly like I think a lot of those things that you wish you had learned when you were 18 and sometimes it takes until 30 or 40 and sometimes we never get the opportunity. We called it fuzzy because we were like often these are referred to as like fuzzy or generalist or soft career skills but they're actually like the things that are really essential to growing and being fulfilled in your career so like stakeholder management negotiation how to receive feedback um, how to manage people just all of those things where you're like oh my god why did no one ever teach me this so that's what I do at the moment I feel like school curriculum needs to be overhauled because we talk about it so much on a money podcast where we're like we don't get taught about money at school and then every guest that we have on is like you don't get taught about this at school you don't get taught about this at school and then it's like you become an adult and it's so true you get to 30 and you're like I'm still a baby like I don't know what I'm doing I don't don't get it I am so on board with this uh and maybe that looks like we finish year 12 and then there's another year and Mm, the government is like life year one term on money one term on sex I don't know about that but <laughs> like, like whole you know, group yeah. of eighteen-year-olds doing a whole term. Exactly, sex. one term on looking after your mental health. Just treating treating these things is important because they're actually like pillars of our well-being. I love yeah. it. I yeah. like to think that schools are getting better at bringing these kind of things into the curriculum. I would. I actually do wonder what like sex ed is like at school right now because I remember so vividly putting a, a condom on a banana, like so vividly with my tutors at the time. Yeah. And mine was an older male and I just found it so yeah. weird. You're just like everyone in this situation is yeah. not having a good time. You're like, this is so – like don't make eye contact with anyone. <laughs> I think it, it is improving. That's also the result of work by a lot of amazing 
amazing activists and people who have taken a lot of time to make the case for why we need consent education and make the case for why educating everyone about straight and LGBTQ sex equally is important. I was going to say, that definitely wasn't part of the curriculum. No, (laughs) was was very much missed. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think we mostly, yeah, mostly our sex ed was focused on like a couple of particular risks around sexual health, like pregnancy and STIs, and just misses basically everything else. I don't know if you want me to talk about sex today. (laughs) (laughs) This is a different podcast. (laughs) No, we're going to talk about, I guess, the cost of having a business. I think we have a lot of people in the community that do have side hustles and it can be a little bit scary sometimes working out when you can take it to that next step. And a lot of it does come down to a money element because I'm Mm. sure if people had, you know, massive safety nets or huge amounts of money coming in, maybe you'd just take a little bit more risk. As a founder, how have you felt around the money side of starting a business? There's a lot of emotions around it. And I think you, you've you got two choices. Either you can ignore those emotions and they'll come back and bite you at really annoying moments, or you kind of try and deal with them up front and try and keep checking in on them as you go. Are the money stories that I have told myself or the stories that I have told myself about being a founder or what this business is going to do? Like, are those things still true? Am I feeling good about the experience or not. Like I think a lot of people, if you've told yourself a story about what a business, what founding business is going to be like, that's perhaps like unrealistic or, you know, is not informed because you haven't had many examples of it around you in your life, is not informed by some of those more realistic examples. And then reality feels really different to it. It can be such a rude shock that it can sort of cause you to like bounce back and not have the resilience to persevere with it. Or you might've told yourself a story about the founder who just continues crashing through walls and like never stops and is relentless <laughs> like there are like you know you've watched like the uber documentary That's and you're exactly like I want to be Travis came into my mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think both of those sets of stories like the overnight success story or the story of the hustle culture relentlessness will eventually get you there mm. both of those can be unhelpful stories and probably extreme stories about what founding a business is like so I think it can be really helpful to just like at the beginning almost do a self-audit what am I telling myself about what this experience is going to be maybe I don't know yet maybe I only have like a low amount of confidence in my stories but just like keep an eye on it so that you don't make yourself brittle or fragile like you can roll with the challenges of running a business but also enjoy the good bits. Going back to the early days of you founding normal Mm. what financial situation were you in if you're comfortable to share and have there been moments along the way where it's been a real oh shit how am I (laughs) going to manage this like where that story has come up for you? Yeah well I think normal is an unusual example in many ways because we were we launched with the support of a venture-backed larger company which is essentially if you've never had any exposure to the world of venture capital and startups that's when like you have large investors who are putting money into small startups that they expect to grow very fast so maybe make the distinction between like a plumbing business where you're like cool I'm setting up a, a small business I might grow to employing a few people over you know the course of a career but you're not growing into Google whereas in our circumstance I had the great privilege of being able to play with other people's money to set up normal and that certainly I think made a lot of that journey easier in the sense I was like I can take a salary from day one here even if it's not what the market rate would be for my skills I was probably taking like on what I could have earned like a 60 70 percent pay cut or something like that but it was still enough to be like I can live comfortably on this covering my expenses for a number of years while building this business and knowing that 
the expected upside on that business is around the ownership of the equity in the business rather than like the salary that I'm drawing from it. So certainly I think that that made that easier. But yeah, in terms of that, like my personal financial situation at that point in time was I had spent a couple of years working in management consulting. So that's actually a pretty high paying grad job. It's really intense, but you get a decent amount of money from doing it. So I had a bit of savings, probably like, I don't know, something in the order of like 20 or $30,000 saved, which I'd burned down over 18 months of not having a job <laughs> since I left management yeah. consulting. How yeah. did that feel? <laughs> like, was that something that made you nervous? Or I guess from not having a job, you kind of knew what you're getting into and the money was there for that reason. Yeah, I think it was definitely uh, uncomfortable. And I think anyone who's had that experience, even if just being like a contractor or a freelancer or of sporadic work will know that kind of discomfort of seeing your financial buffer reduce or of feeling like like you're concerned about cash flow and like even when payments are coming like I think that's something we often underestimate not just the amount of money in your bank account but actually like regularity of a paycheck that is always landing as opposed to like having to chase clients or whatever but I worked quite hard for a couple of years, tried really hard while I was a consultant not to let my lifestyle inflate, saving most of what I was earning, mainly so I would have the ability to like buy more time for myself to experiment in a structured way and think about what I wanted to do after consulting. So I think that was actually really helpful. One good piece of advice that I got during that, randomly a friend of mine knew Tom Tilly, the like Triple J guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the time I was like, I am curious about career transitions. I was thinking about something like media as well. Obviously didn't end up doing that. Ended up going down the startup route. But spoke to him and was like, how did you do it? Did you just like, you know, start day one, got like a full-time paid job in media from there? <laughs> and he was like, no. <laughs> it was gentle. But he was like, actually, what you should be doing is like thinking about if you have an existing set of skills, can you pay your bills in one or two or three or four days a week with those skills and then buy back the time for yourself to do work that is about building skills, work that's about building a portfolio, like doing work that is about getting experience or doing things for free or pursuing passions. That turned out to be incredibly valuable advice for me because I spent like the next 18 months or so doing a bunch of pro bono work in social impact world, helping organizations with like strategy and planning for them and finding that that was something where I really loved thinking about how do you actually do social change at scale and then doing like bits of work with startups and doing zero to one, how do you think about tackling a new problem and develop a product mm. and launch a business and I really got the bug from doing that if I was giving advice I'd be like if you have the capacity to give yourself a buffer so you can buy time to experiment sort of take one part of the portfolio of your career and use that to pay your bills while you have other time where you don't necessarily need to be maximizing for money that is like a really really valuable thing I know not everyone is in that position as well and so I don't want to like give that advice blithely because it'll depend on your circumstances too. It links nicely back to the first episode we did of this series where we were talking mm. about like how when we're feeling funny in a financial situation, how we can use the existing skills we have to make money because these days it is more accessible than what it used to be just with things like the internet. Totally. So it's like building that little, like working out where you have the capacity and then using the skills to... I don't know, make some cash, yeah, which can be I mean, hard to do. It can, but like one of the things that we've been trying to do a lot recently over the last month is we often do live events for corporates, like mm. do corporate workshops. And in the past, we'd done them quite a bit for free because it was like a great opportunity to build audience. But recently there'd been a few paid gigs that came up and we were kind of like, why don't we do this more? <laughs> 
And we put a call out on LinkedIn and we've literally had so many brands get in contact. And it's it's such a classic example of my automatic mindset prior to us having this conversation was like, I need to spend less mm. and I need to cut out things for my expenses. Well, actually, I can also just be thinking of ways to make more money. Yeah. <laughs> and then mindset. I can continue <laughs> abundance mindset and then you can continue to have more options, right? Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that you did that as well. Um, that's fantastic. <laughs> so I want to get into the nitty gritty of what it actually costs to run a business. If someone's sitting there and saying, okay, where do I start? What does that look like cost-wise? Well, uh, get a bank account, um, <laughs> usually usually free or low cost <laughs> and like register your business. You can usually do that for free. I'd almost think about if you're starting a business, a lot of people have a black and white or zero or a hundred view of what starting a business should look like. And actually I think the lesson that a lot of people take as they've started businesses on their own is like, you can do this more incrementally. So let's say you've got an idea, man, this part of this product really fucking annoys me. What if it was X? Like, what if I made a candle where the wax didn't end up around the sides and only 60% of the candle burns? Gosh. Yes. Yes. Also someone make that business. <laughs> but like, <laughs> just as a really like simplified example of like a business you might want to start as a physical product company, you're making 100% burn candles. And then you might be like, okay, is this idea worth me giving one to two weeks of my time to do more market research to? And so actually go out and be like, cool, if I Google this product, what options do I find? Does it already exist? Or if I go to the website of companies that make products in this category? What are the top reasons people complain in the reviews? Um, and what are the things that people don't love about this product? Or like, what are the things that seem to be bestsellers or selling well? Like, is there any market reports I can find and all that type of stuff? So doing that, then maybe doing a bit of actual user research. So like, do you have a group of people you could survey? Most of the time when that's the case, you'll find that people tell you what you want to hear and you will frame questions in a way that gets you the answers you like. So figuring mm. out ways to de-bias <laughs> your yeah. market research is really helpful. Especially um, when you're asking your mate yeah, yeah, yeah. or your mom. <laughs> no, like don't ask, like ask your worst enemy what they think of your business idea. <laughs> so I would always give the advice. Of, you may even want to create a website and it doesn't cost like the barriers to entry on putting up like a small number of Facebook or Instagram ads or TikTok ads or making mm. organic, organic content for something. And even like taking a look at what's already in that space and copying that content you wouldn't do that permanently but if you just want to get a sense of like what how much do people engage with this like what are the click-through rates and that might give you a better sense of like is there demand you know do people actually want this product other than me and so once you've kind of given yourself a couple of weeks to work on this idea and I've built enough conviction in that idea to kind of move to the next phase of it which is all right let's make a business plan and think about well seems like there's demand for this idea, but that demand or people wanting something doesn't necessarily translate into a profitable or sustainable business. Mm -hmm. So you might actually like build a profit and loss statement. I hope this isn't really dry. <laughs> like, no, I mean, like, I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah, like for all of the PL nerds out yeah. there, but like actually build an example profit and loss statement. So, mm. and if for anyone who doesn't have to deal with those, which is totally fine, think about, you know, when people say like the bottom line as a phrase colloquially, the bottom line is like profit on that statement. The top line is revenue or sales and what comes in. And then you'd basically just like take off pieces in between those. And that tells you how good or bad a business is. Yeah. Um, so if 
if I think I could sell 100 candles for $20 each, that's yeah. your revenue. And then taking out the costs that you know you're going to have to incur in order to get those yeah. into the hands of the customer. Exactly. When you do a little bit of a business plan, what you'll usually find is there's going to be like three to five key assumptions that you need to test within that business plan. And so you might be like, you know, I'm getting myself another two weeks and I'm going to give myself 1000 or $2,000, which I'm comfortable treating as money that, hey, this is a good investment. And if it goes nowhere, it goes nowhere, but I'll have prevented myself from making a $100,000 mistake with that investment, or I will have helped validate my decision to make a bigger investment in this business. Yeah. yeah so almost just like proceeding in that way, where instead of being like, I'm going to quit my job and do the thing because yeah. I have a dream, like <laughs> just giving yourself time and space and incrementally larger amounts of time and money to put towards it, to test out that idea. And then when you're like, cool, okay, I want to, I want to give this a go for three months. I'm going to buy this much inventory and here's how I'll know that that's succeeding well enough for me to want to keep going. I also feel like that incremental way of doing things, it gives you time and space to speak to people about what you're doing. So I have a friend who has started a business and she just did it quite quickly and she got advice to build an app and an app is really expensive no. to build. Oh, See, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That's like a, a visceral like Reaction. anxiety response. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So don't build apps. Well, so <laughs> she, yeah. She kind of got advice from someone that, you know, that an app's the way to go with how she would, you know, deal with her consumers and whatnot. And she mm. told me that she'd spent $50,000 and it's still not developed and launched yet. Yeah. So over the course of like a year from getting that advice and not really thinking about or like not spending the time to kind of really build out what she needed to do and how she was going to reach her consumers. Yeah. She spent $50,000 trying to build something that hasn't launched yet. Yeah. There are a whole bunch of really good, I would say like classic business books around some of these topics, like things like Lean Startup methodology can be really helpful where they sort of speak about how can you go through cycles of testing something in the lowest cost, like most scrappy way possible to see if, you know, it's going to be true that it actually does need to be an app or not. Maybe the correct solution would actually have been much more low tech for that. Um, Or maybe, yes, it makes sense as an app, but you figured that out after testing a prototype that you built in Canva with like a thousand people and you've gotten them to like do pre-sales. And so you know that they're willing to actually put money behind saying they like the the product. Um, So there's there's different ways to do it, but um, definitely like that. I think just being able to treat those decisions a little bit more incrementally is a is a really helpful way to go about it. I'm glad you brought that up because I reckon there would be so many people listening, me included, who when thinking about starting a business, you go, oh, I'll just build an app for something. It's like, <laughs> it's like the next, you know, Uber or Airbnb for mm. insert industry here. And I don't think I'd ever really thought about the fact that that could cost so much money. Well, I feel like there is information out there, but what's difficult is that it sometimes is a little bit hidden because people are kind of selling you a bit of a dream. dream. Yeah. (laughs) Also, yeah, that would be another good piece of business advice. If someone is giving you positive reinforcement of an idea, awesome, but also just do be aware of their incentives. If you don't understand how someone makes money and how their business model works, then you're putting yourself in a position of vulnerability because you're not necessarily understanding how their incentives might shape the way that they want to engage with you. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's not great if she's paid 50,000 and like that app still isn't built. That's 
pretty bad. But just as a general rule, like I think it's really valuable to be like, oh, if you know someone works on an agency model, their goal is maximize the amount of work that we are paying for from them and avoid as much as possible KPIs that they actually have to hit. Um, <laughs> and like, that's totally fine, legitimate model. But if you're thinking about that, is there a way to better align our interests here so that if, you know, like we both succeed when the results that are important for the business happen, and that might be like a better way to proceed, you give someone equity in the business instead of like paying them just a flat fee for doing that work. And that way they succeed when the business starts to make money. So there are different ways to play with that. Well, Lucy, we are going to take a really quick break for our sponsors. But when we come back, I would love to chat to you about some of the most expensive and some of the most valuable things that you spent money on when building normal. So we've been chatting with Lucy in this episode about how when you're thinking about starting a business, it's really important to get an understanding of your incomings and your outgoings or your revenue and expenses. I feel like that very much applies to our personal finances too. We need to know our incomings and outgoings. (laughs) Yeah. Well, my (laughs) bank up has recently introduced a new feature called Hi-Fi. It's basically an automated financial system to help you manage your money on autopilot and it's all in the app. Okay, that sounds like something I need. Pitch it to me. What's your favourite part? Well, I now get notifications for upcoming bills, which means I can charge my housemates in advance rather than going into debt. I have all of my expenses aligned and I'm actually getting an understanding of what my outgoings are. And my favorite feature is that it helps me to know how much I'm due to have left over at the end of each pay cycle so I can spend more responsibly on fun stuff. Well, if that's not a reason to join us, along with 750,000 young Australians using UP. A digital bank which is making dealing with money easy for our generation and giving us the tools to get our finances sorted and get what we want in life. And if you download the UP app and sign up with the code YIGC, they will deposit 10 bucks into your bank account. Easy money. T's and C's apply. Find them at up.com.au forward slash terms. So I guess investing in a business, you invest in many different ways and there's often a lot of cost items, which we spoke about before. For that person that's sitting at home that's wanting to start that candle business and they're thinking about their line items of like, okay, what's the packaging and whatnot, Mm. there's a lot of information out there to troll through. How do you cost analyze to work out what's the cheapest and best option? Yeah, and I think whenever you have like a product you want to develop, coming in with a really good brief and a set of here's the features that are must-haves, here's the things that are going to be nice-to-haves, here's how you want this brand to be positioned in the market. But I think sometimes people are like, they've got taste and a vision, but they haven't necessarily thought, who's my real customer for this? What are they looking for in that product more clearly? So definitely just having that clarity about what you want that to be like. And if you're making a sex toy, that'll be like, it has to be medical grade silicon. We want the vibration levels to be here to here, which means you need a higher quality motor that will ensure that it's not loud or buzzy or numbing your body. (laughs) This is literally my briefs. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And like with our packaging, like for us, sustainability is really important. So we think about, okay, how can we make packaging that is like designed to be reused or recycled in every part of that process, which is more expensive as well. So that might not be, you know, what you're making, but just like as examples, you'll have a set of criteria that you're going out with. And then I would actually recommend, even if you don't use this as a service, it's not a thing that we use. We work directly with our manufacturers, but take a look at somewhere like Alibaba. There's a lot of people in a market like Australia, like if you're sort of looking for, okay, I'm probably going to have a low 
amount of inventory that I'm going to be able to buy at the beginning. Like I'm not buying 100,000 units of my candle yet. <laughs> that <laughs> yes. obviously someday, uh, someday you'll be glass house. But let's say that you're like going to be buying a small quantity. You will often find that there's lots of middle players who are essentially like buying direct off a low cost manufacturing country and then reselling in small quantities in Australia. So in that case, it's worth actually just checking like what's the underlying price of this if I were to buy direct from a manufacturer and work direct with a manufacturer in whatever jurisdiction you're thinking about. Obviously really important to also check your supply chain, make sure that it's been made ethically, like all of those considerations, but it's good to just almost get a sense of like, what's the underlying cost to make this object? (laughs) Mm. And even as a consumer, I would sometimes recommend doing this as well. Um, If you're thinking about like, how much is the brand markup on the thing that I'm consuming? It can be helpful to actually go to somewhere like Alibaba and type in, you were talking about conversation cards before, (laughs) like how much does it cost to make a pack of cards? Surprisingly little. It's actually a great product category. Make them. Um, (laughs) Noted. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But for something like that, start somewhere like that. Go through, okay, there's probably going to be a category of suppliers where you might be able to have a more direct relationship and you'll maybe have more assurance of like the quality, but it's going to be a higher cost. Uh, And then go and sample. Like you can usually ask people for samples of their products or get them sent to you. So actually go and have a look at what's available. And then you'll be thinking about customization. Customization is expensive. Non-customization is cheap because the manufacturer gets to do economies of scale. Uh, Whenever you're starting a business, I think you will feel confused and alone and like you don't understand any of the jargon around you or the differences between the players that you're having to deal with. I think so much of starting a business is realizing that there's like 10 different learning curves around you and you're at the bottom of all of them and on each of them, you're dealing with a supplier who knows way more about the industry than you, or you're dealing with a software engineer who knows way more about app building than you, or you're dealing with a marketer who knows way more about marketing than you. And so learning ways that you get up your learning curves fast enough to be effective at that decision making is actually also really helpful too. Yeah, I think even just going in with that understanding that that's normal. Yeah, that oh, it's feeling totally normal. that way. Yeah. Is, the yeah. imposter syndrome will never go away. Yeah. Like, <laughs> never. When you think about um, your journey with normal so far yeah. and appreciating that you talked about how when you started, you were venture backed. So it wasn't your own money that you're playing with. But yeah. what were some of the biggest costs that either took you by surprise Mm. or that you were so grateful that you had invested in? Yeah, great question. I think things that are surprisingly expensive is like making the mold that a sex toy comes out of. Random. (laughs) Yeah. And this is one of those things where it's either fascinating, like there are people who are like, this is so cool. I get to see (laughs) like how the world works behind all of the consumer products that I I use or people who are like, I'm so bored. Just get me the thing. (laughs) Yeah. Like either one is valid, but you'll find out soon enough what you are. When you're making a sex toy, the component parts are there is a vibration mechanism that goes internally. There is a mold that is like made of kind of a hardened plastic, which is the shape that it has. You might have molten silicon that goes over that to make it like squishy and soft. And then you'll have like a silicon medical grade coating over the top of that. So it's like electronics coated in silicon basically. (laughs) But the plastic mold that goes inside your vibrator, you can actually slice your vibrator open if you ever want to, to find this. (laughs) Do vibrator surgery when it dies Um, (laughs) or like a vibrator, like postmortem. If you slice it open, like you will find the plastic mold. You would not think that that is hard to make, but what sits behind that is actually like someone has to make a massive steel metal mold into which that plastic gets poured. And so that's a really expensive process, which means that if you're making a sex toy like design or shape for the first time and that manufacturer doesn't have that mold then 
you bear the cost of essentially like all of the startup costs to get them to zero to be able to make the first unit. Once they've made the first unit, those units are very cheap to make, but you have to cover this initial like quite large amount of money. For me at the beginning, I was like, we need to cover all of these things. And we wanted our range to genuinely just like make sure that it was serving people with penises, people with vulvas, couples, solo, like feel curated, but complete in a lot of ways. And that was a costly decision, not necessarily the wrong one, but like not one I could have made without venture capital backing. Like I think if I was starting this on my own, I'd be like lucky to make one toy. So being able to launch with seven was definitely a function of that money and that investment. And that also probably meant that we could leapfrog a lot of competitors who might've been, you know, started for longer because we had that money. So I think that's like even just a useful insight. If you're going into a new product category or something, thinking about is this space moving really quickly and will I miss out on the ability to build a brand in this space if I don't have like the kind of extra rocket fuel of other people's investment and do I want to go consider seeking investment or is this something where I can build a niche for myself and build it as just like a profitable business or build it off a loan of some kind or whatever. It's a great thing to think about. I also think it's great because just then you've been so transparent about the fact you obviously had backing so you could do that Mm. and it is good for just you know the person sitting at home wanting to start something and having an understanding of what your surroundings are like you don't want to look at someone and compare yourself and be like why haven't I been able to achieve that so it's good to know like these things are expensive and if you're starting by yourself with very limited capital things might take a longer time totally to actually get off the ground you'll hear I think lots of stories of people obsessive product visionaries who are like I did 300 versions of the vacuum cleaner before I made the perfect one and that can be a really high standard to hold yourself to so I think being intentional about there will probably be things that you want to fix about your first product almost certainly (laughs) the moment you release it (laughs) figuring out how many iterations of perfecting and sampling do I want to do before I start actually like making some sales of the product and then being able to use those to like fund the next set of iterations I think that can be a really hard balance to navigate particularly if you've not done that before as well and also getting something out there sometimes to a consumer is a good way just to test it yes. and work out everything that's wrong with it totally you will be constantly surprised by what matters to consumers and customers you might want to talk about feature number 10 to 15 because you're so bored of talking about one to nine and you're like surely everyone knows these things about us now like like for normal I'd be like everyone knows we're like Australian owned everyone knows our work funds education everyone knows like inclusion is really important nope they don't they don't (laughs) so yeah marketing is not about you it's about your customer I do want to pivot a little bit now so much of what we've been talking about today comes back to having the language to have these conversations. I was listening to a podcast you did recently and the way that you talked about the things that you learned from your social sciences degree and I guess how that has shaped the way that you think about the work that you do now Mm. and so much of what you were saying about sex and having the language to talk about it was also applicable to money. money. One thing that is a really interesting, weird parallel for me between like money and sex is when we look at how we talk about sex as a society, generally the stats and the research, these are averages rather than absolutes. But in female-female friendships, people are actually much more willing to talk about sex. Like the conversation around sex and pleasure and using vibrators and what you want is often like warm, supportive, pretty open. What we hear from a lot of cis 
straight men is that they have no place where they can actually speak about sex. If they speak about sex with their mates, it's like reduced to a punchline or it's about objectification or conquest. There's no place to talk about fears and anxieties around performance or body image or desires that you want to explore but feel uh, shameful for some reason. Like there's no place to have that conversation. It's actually 10 or 15 years behind what's happening in like the average female friendship. Mm. And when it comes to money, I think there's almost like this interesting reverse where women are taught that the way to financial security is budgeting. Men are taught that the way to financial security is investing and like growing wealth and being a breadwinner. And you see these like gender roles play out where in female friendships, I think we often also have like archetypes around femininity. You know, femininity is vulnerability and empathy and selflessness and caring for others because of all of those things being ambitious or being perceived as greedy or being perceived as competitive is like a violation of feminine archetypes or stereotypes. There's a fear of social punishment for that. And for lots of straight men, like they are having these conversations that are about hierarchy and dominance and being the most most alphaist, breadwinneriest, breadwinner of all the alphas. Like, um, and again, stereotypes. <laughs> but I think you can see how like if you have a, a view of masculinity that is vulnerability and weakness are not okay, I need to be able to be a breadwinner in order to be worthy of um, partnership, that like that creates these really different dynamics and we don't necessarily have scripts, for, for example, some, for someone to be like, I may not want to be a breadwinner. Like I actually am really interested in a career that sits outside over here. I don't define my worth by money and I need a way to talk to my mates about the fact that like I'm not going to be able to keep up with like some of the purchases they're making or, you know, in female friendships being like, yeah, I just made like 100K on the stock market. It's fucking great. Yeah. Like, yeah. How good. <laughs> um, or, or being able to own the fact of struggling with business decisions or just, I yeah, I think there's like a lot of parallels of we haven't been role modeled how to do this, which is why what I think you're doing is awesome. Um, and this whole series is awesome. But yeah, it's there's a real like a real absence of, tools to support these conversations yeah we had a really interesting conversation in our newsletter the other day around the concept of treating yourself and whether it's problematic Mm. because we were touching on just then around how females are much more inclined on average to think about caring for those around them and we shared a stat around how females are more likely to distribute their income into their family four times more likely we went back and forth because it's like we were trying to distinguish the need to like yeah, spend money on yourself. That's a good thing. But then why don't we hear the men in our lives being like, oh, I just treated myself today. Like you don't (laughs) ever hear people really say that. Yeah. To me, what that says is like we have this starting assumption of who is worthy of money being spent on them. And so we need to like explain exceptions being made. This is, I think, deep unconscious bias. Like I don't think anyone is I don't think many people are like sitting there being like, yeah, women don't deserve money being spent on them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, if your kind of assumption is like that, of course, men should have money spent on them and women should be like focused on the needs of others. And then if, if there's something left over, then they can give themselves something. Then you start using the language of treating yourself mm. or and maybe that also comes from a place of budgeting as well. And like yeah. that kind of budgeting versus investing or downside versus upside gendered attitudes to money. But, or abundance, yeah. Maddie, which we're adopting. I know. Abundance attitude. Got lots of money. Manifest, <laughs> manifest. Well, Lucy, I feel like we could speak to you all day. We could probably <laughs> go into like a hundred different topics. We're going to have to get yeah. you back. <laughs> We're going to have to get you back, definitely. We wanted to thank you so much for your time today. If people want to find 
anything about any of your businesses. Pardon the pun, but give us the plug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, I love it. Um, and thank you both for having me. It's been delightful. If you want to find Normal, our website is itsnormal.com and you can find us on Instagram at normalco. And then if you want to find the work I do with career skills, um, go to like fuzzyhq.com. There's like a teach yourself to negotiate your salary course. So that can be like a nice kind of resource. And then if you do work in startups, I might just do one more light plug, which is a lot of the work I've been doing lately has also been around sexual harassment and reducing rates of harassment in the startup world. So there's an organization called Grapevine, which works on that platforming anonymized stories where people can share those experiences. And we give advice to stakeholders as well. So knowing that this might be an audience that has lots of women in it who are interested in business if that's ever an issue that you're experiencing or you want support some good resources there too and what was the website for that one uh, askthegrapevine.com ask the yeah. grapevine perfect yeah thanks yeah and you can find it on linkedin or instagram as well well knowing just how busy you are that makes me especially grateful that you've made time for us today so lucy thank you very much pleasure thank you for having me well, so that wraps up the final episode of Out of Boo Money Chats. It's really sad because honestly, this has been the best series. It's I been feel so like fun. We've turned a corner. Turned a corner. We've broken new ground. Okay. <laughs> but regardless, we don't want the conversation to stop here with this no. episode, and we want you to be answering some of our juicy questions. Please give us your thoughts. How much has it cost you to start a business? What has been one of the biggest expenses, but it was like so worth it? And have you felt isolated as a founder to talk about the money side of your journey? Shoot us an email to yigc at equitymates.com or DM us at yigc podcast. And we'll be collating your thoughts anonymously, of course, in our weekly newsletter. You can sign up via the link in our show notes. And whilst you're on your phone, why not download Australia's highest rated banking app? This episode was brought to you by UP, the bank making dealing with money easy for our generation. And if you download and sign up using the code YIGC, they will deposit $10 into your account. T's and C's apply. Find them at up.com.au forward slash terms. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.